Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Kaya, and Miles talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week, the news that you didn't hear. And DR is not with us recording, but she's always here in spirit, and her news is too. And then I sit down with the author of the new book, The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. We chat about the impact of corporate America on women of color professionals, the impact on their career, family life, even their mental and physical health. This one is deep and insightful. I learned a ton in this conversation, and you will too. My advice for this week is love the arts. Go to a play, y'all. Go see, like, movies are cool, but go to a play, go to a performance. Like, now that the world is opening back up a little bit, I've been to, I'm actually on the way to go see a play right now, and, you know, the play, you still got to wear masks and stuff, but that is a-okay, because we're in the middle of a pandemic still. But go see a play, go do the arts, like, go, go see something. Uh, it's time to see something. Hello, family. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. My name is Kaya Henderson, and you can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. My name is Miles E. Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Feral Rapture. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. Unfortunately, we have more existential, miserable news in um, the world of there not being any gun control. In th- as of yesterday, um, three dead and 12 injured after a shooting in South Street in Philadelphia. It seems as though we are getting more and more of these stories, more and more of these situations. And I feel like people, and we're continuing Some of us are continuing to miss the opportunity to use this so people uh, don't have these guns, don't have uh, access to this type of violence. Um, How do you all feel? I mean, I'm just stunned at how every single day there is a shooting somewhere from hospitals to churches to grocery stores to whatever. And it makes me really self-conscious about where to go. And it makes me angry that for the most part, outside of Mr. Biden's, you know, speech, I guess, this past week, um, we're not seeing movement on this at all. Like any place else would be outraged, would be doing all the things, would be introducing emergency legislation, would be going filing, you know, whatever, lawsuits against these gun manufacturers. Like, I I mean, I feel like we've just decided there's nothing that we can do about this because the Republicans are intransigent on it. And so we're just like, huh, it's just another day at the OK Corral. I do think, too, you know, this is one of those moments where we can move people, where people are interested, they want to know solutions. And part of the part of I think the responsibility of organizers in this moment is to give people the tools and the language so they know what to do, because I do think that people think this is inevitable. But you're like. No, it is the people and the guns. People, the people who are wild and, and hateful and can't do it if they don't have access to guns. And it is still wild to me that there's any legislator who tries to rationalize that you need an automatic rifle. It doesn't make sense. I saw an old white guy legislator say that they need automatic rifles to like clear away the 
uh, the squirrels and raccoons. Come on. That was <laughs> like, when they were, somebody was like, well, why do you mean it? He was like, for the raccoons. And no, nah, nah, raccoons might be a euphemism for something else, but it's not actually the raccoons, right? So I do think that we got to push people. And I do think in some ways we're like a victim of the simplicity of the solutions that people, especially I think, and totally push me if you disagree, I think that then when we come from heavily regulated communities, you can't imagine that something like this is not regulated because everything else in our communities is regulated. So like the thought that a child could walk into a store and get an AK or AR4, I mean AR15 and a thousand bullets and it's like no alarm, no note goes anywhere. That just feels so wild when like you can't even go buy 10 packs of cigarettes in some places. Like you can't even, you know, like there's so many other restrictions. And if you look at the proliferation of guns over the last five to 10 years, there's a direct tie. First of all, we have more guns than like you could ever do anything with. Um, But there's a direct tie to marketing from gun manufacturers who market specifically to exactly the kind of people who are doing these shootings by telling them that their manhood and their masculinity will be reinforced. Get your man card back and all of this stuff. And this marketing has been absolutely effective and strategic and targeted. And we're just like, oh, well, oh, well, like this is so crazy. The last thing I'll say is that remember that the Republicans get it because at their rallies, guns are banned. They get it. At the last big uh, Trump rally, guns were banned, right? Like they understand that this is a problem when it's their lives on the line. Well, but part of the part of the marketing is really around getting people to be able to defend themselves against the heathen horde of black people and Latino people who are coming for them, right? Like the Black Lives, there was a proliferation of of gun purchases after Black Lives Matters protests because what these gun manufacturers are marketing to people is they are coming for you. Nobody is coming for you in Montana, I promise you. <laughs> but these people are suited and booted and ready for, you know, the race war. They won't say it out loud, but this is what people are selling and and folks are buying it. And with all this stuff going on, it doesn't feel like getting prepared for the race war. It feels like there is a war and it's raced and it's happening, you know, and the guerrilla war tactics are being used. It's really scary. And again, like I said last last week, um, I don't see how anybody can see witnesses witness that and not in their head uh, just understand that they're siding with evil. Villainous behavior. Well, in other terrible news, my news today is about women and the men who love them and have sometimes um, expectations around a very sensitive issue. My news is about the legacy, the troubled legacy of feminine care products. Now, the big question at hand is why are women, especially women of color, continuing to use feminine care products? By feminine care products, I mean wipes, washes, douches, powders, etc., that are widely considered to be unnecessary and potentially harmful. Now, we are going straight into the honeypot, friends. We are all grown-ups. We can have this kind of conversation. Um, but why are women continuing to use these products? Um, three things. Racism, 
tradition and targeted advertising. I thought this was so fascinating because like many Black women, um, traditions around feminine care or intimate care were passed on to me by my mother and my grandmother. And in fact, that is one of the problems. One of the problems is um, we have uh, we have institutionalized in our beauty culture um, intimate cleansing in particular ways that are not only not helpful to us, but are quite harmful and harmful to us. Studies show that Black women use intimate care products more than any other demographic. And it's in part because of the racism that comes from, well, I guess sexism first, um, because historically women's bodies have been seen as unclean because we menstruate. You can look back at biblical times where women were sequestered um, when they were having their period. Um, but then also... Um, the negative olfactory stereotypes wielded against dark-skinned people. So y'all, the white folks told us that we smell and that we are lesser people because we smell. In fact, several experts note that the evolution of common vulvar and vaginal care routines observed within the Black community have a fraught history that's tied to racism because when they were constructing race, right, one of the things that they, um, one of the phenotypic differences uh, used to distinguish Black people from other races included smell. And this shaped our ideas about cleanliness and deodorization um, because we were workers, right? And so we were sweaty and we smelled and we started to associate cleanliness and odor freeness with personal progress and racial assimilation. And so we have all of these ideas about what it means to be clean and fresh as Black women that are harming us. Um, from a health perspective, literally, like the, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists does not recommend using douches, washes, wipes, or other similar products at all because the female reproductive system takes care of itself. Um, there are lots of folks who are like, yeah, yeah, no internal products, but external products, you know, wipes and whatnot, but external products cause skin irritation and other harmful issues for us. Um, you know, a while ago, we we learned about the, the harmful effects, the cancerous effects of Johnson & Johnson baby powder on Black women. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second because the advertising piece of this ties into it. Um, but, you know, we, we are harming ourselves. So it's not it's, it is the racism, it's the tradition, but it's also a result of targeted advertising. So just like menthol cigarettes, which we learned were targeted towards, advertising was targeted towards Black people, there's strategic advertising in the feminine care industry targeting Black people. The article points out that no commercials for vaginal deodorants were in Life magazine, but Ebony had a, had more than one feminine deodorant commercial per issue. In fact, Johnson & Johnson continued to market its 
powder to black people, to the black community, well into the 2000s, even though there was evidence that it caused cancer. Janice Mathis, who's the executive director of the National Council of Negro Women, who brought suit against Johnson & Johnson, said what I think sums this up best. This company, through its words and images, told Black women that we were offensive in in our natural state and needed to use their products to stay fresh. Generations of Black women believed them and made it our daily practice to use their products in ways that put us at risk of cancer and we taught our daughters to do the same. Um, so this is, is, you know, I don't think many people question um, the practices that their mamas and their grandmamas and their aunties have passed down. Primary care physicians and OBGYNs are not talking about this to women. And so Black women continue to be at risk because of systematic racism, even into our intimate cleansing routines. At the end of the day, a little gentle soap and some water will do everything that you need. And if we don't understand our history, if we don't have these different conversations, if we don't challenge white beauty norms and love ourselves exactly as we are, we're going to end up smelling fresh but being hurt. Go ahead and preach a word this morning, Pastor Kaya. Listen, um, I mean, obviously, you, you have the authority in this conversation, um, so, so I'm not going to add too much, but I did see the whole honeypot thing, and my biggest critique is, I think it's pretty disgusting that somebody would gain the trust of Black people, specifically somebody in the community, would gain the trust of Black people, and then change the ingredients, because I do think, like, 100 whatever everything that you said but as somebody like just just my position as a assigned male at birth femme non-binary person right i still enjoy beauty and self-care and i'm i mean most products that i have would not be um underneath necessities <laughs> to put it like me <laughs> so <laughs> you know so i do think that there's space for maybe a reclamation or a, a, a different understanding of these products. And I think that Honeypot was that thing. Not only was Honeypot something cute that you call it and it's a colloquialism, also Honeypot was something that was signifying people of spiritual African communities of Oshun, who's seen as a divine feminine flirt, um, flirt and, all these, and all these different things. So it really created, it really created trust within, within, um, within our community. And I think it's really disgusting to leverage that for like for corporate for corporate gain. And I think for a lot of times, a lot, a lot of the answers to these things, when I'm being honest to myself, when I think about beauty and self care and all the things that I really love, is uh, transformation probably not stopping, <laughs> like not stopping it, but creating a new normal. Because there's always going to be somebody who, even if you weren't, and for how, how whatever miracle that is, but even if you weren't socialized, you're like, oh, I like the idea of that smelling like. Honey in a pod. It, you know what I mean? It is a more interesting scent than what uh, God gave me. And I think there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. But I do think when you are a Black-owned company, it is your responsibility to maybe do things slower or differently in order to keep the trust of your community. And that's what I left with is kind of a big critique for Honey Pod and, and where they decided to go after getting our trust in our in our dollars. I thought the honeypot thing was was interesting because my I think I I generally assume the best or I try to assume the best about our 
folks who are providing goods and services in our community, especially when it's a need like, you know, we got all of this fraught around intimate cleansing. And here is a black owned company saying, we're going to do it differently. We're going to do it more safely. We're going to do it plant-based and chemical free. And I do think that, um, the backlash. So when they change their formula, you know, my assumption is you probably cannot, whatever you were cooking up in your kitchen or, or in your first batches, when you're producing at scale and shelf life and all of those things, you know, maybe you have to come up with a different formula. I think what was interesting to me is that is that there was a conversation in the community. We are okay talking to Black-owned businesses when we are not satisfied, but we're not blowing up Johnson & Johnson, right? And they've been killing us. We're not blowing up Summer's Eve and that stuff is unnecessary for us. But we go after the Black people because we feel like they are accountable to us. Why can't we Why can't we make the white people who make these products that are harming us, why can't we hold them accountable in the same way? My, my push on that, Ms. Kaya, is I think, it's, I think we're accountable because they made themselves account, accountable to us. And I think just like, like rainbow washing is, June, rainbow washing is a thing. I think vegan washing is a thing. And sometimes the, there are just uh, aesthetic cues that make you think that it's healthy. Uh, sometimes I'll look at the um, nutritional uh, facts or something. I'm like, well, why would you put this farmer picking this grass on the on on top if it if it if it's just salt and sugar you know but it, but we but we know about that and I do think and this is something that I was tr- think I was trying to give language to even last week I think there is this commercial pro black washing of stuff so you so you entice us and you seduce us that's why I even use the fact that part of the honey pot brand is using African excuse me our you, using our language she had when she was talking about her success she had um literally at her mouth called on her ancestors and use all these coded languages that makes you uh, make that that it seduces us and makes you be, uh, us want to support you. So I think that if you do that, there's going to be a specific type of critique that comes at your door because you're using our orishas, you're using our language, and you are um, transforming our trauma into profit. So I think it's deserved. But yeah, I agree. Yeah. With you. I, I agree with you. I think we can yell at two people at one time because my mother did it. <laughs> my mother did it, and I'm a believer, and I do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I didn't know anything about this guy until you until you brought it. It makes me think of um there's a new documentary that's coming out about birth control that Ricky Lake produced. And the the thing this made me think about that made me think about that is not only the issue related to women's products, but but how everything comes back to race. It really does. Like it is one of the, you know, people joke about this idea that it all comes back to race, but it does, does all come back to race. They think we're conspiracists, but this is the conspiracy. Yeah. And what I didn't know about birth control is that it was tested. They were, they were having trouble testing it in the United States. So they went to Puerto Rico with like no approval, really tested it on Puerto Rican women a lot of women died and they just underreported the deaths and that's how they got it approved. That's how like they got through the trial phase. And you're like, it always goes back to race, right? Like it literally always goes back to race. And that's what made me think of here is like how many other stories do we not know? And shout out to the big public, you know, th- your article is in the Washington Post, right? Shout out to big platforms using those platforms to tell the truth about what's happening and about how we got here. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Take the People's coming.
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This is so serious. Everything is going so well. And here I come with my news. My, my black circle was entertained, dumbfounded, and uh, talkative over DL. <laughs> I said DL. DL Hughley and Monique getting into a very, very, very public argument. The argument um, which I soaked in. I think I canceled a lunch date. I was so fascinated with that. And I just have a really big fascination with Black public conflict. I love it. It is juicy to me. It is interesting. And I love that it's recorded. I love that it happens in, in, in a lot of different spaces. And I think, although it might not be comfortable in the present moment, I think history is going to, I think it's going to be valuable in history. Uh, and I think, and I even think about like James Baldwin's critique of uh, Native Son, and 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 how like conflict really is the 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 bouncing place of growth in 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 certain types of conversation. I think it's necessary. <sighs> Monique uh, got on stage and lit D.L. Hughley up, lit him up about apparently he was supposed to be um, he wasn't supposed to be headlining. Then he kind of slowed his foot so he would end up headlining and say, you know what, I'm not going to perform if I don't hit. He- if um, if I don't headline, and then Monique said, "Well, okay, well, if I go out there right now, I'm gonna say some things." And she said some things, and somebody pressed record, and there is not. I'm like, was looking through. I was like, there's nothing that I can say besides she said that <laughs> that's appropriate for this podcast. Besides that, she said that um, he opened for the Kings of Comedy and she closed for the Queens of Comedy. But I thought it was re- and and then after that moment went viral, there was a back and forth of show your contract to prove it. And, you know, D.L. Hughley produced a deal, a deal memo and then she produced a signed contract and there was this whole, like, big back and forth. And I think why... I, so, in my own person, me and DeRay will have these, like, conversations about, like, whose team I'm on, but I try to be as objective as possible when I got a microphone in my hand to, like, get, like, add some more value than, like, binary, like, more like morals. Um, even though I'm Team Monique. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I wanted, so this is not a, so this is not a moment like Chris Rock and, and Will Smith, right? Um, this is not a moment where somebody was at a ceremony and they slapped somebody because they didn't say what they said. This is a conflict that happened in a, in a um, black comedy club, uh, or a black, or excuse me, a theater with, um, black, with black comics. And she expressed herself and she did what she does. And I'm, Wondering you all's opinion about 
when is it appropriate to do what Monique does if we're always going to say, well, you can't do that there and you can't do that there. But I'm like, if there's no place to light somebody on fire verbally, it, like it has to be the, the black, um, the black comic club. And I, and, and I just have a different, uh, maybe just even generationally, I have a different relationship with black comedy, listening to Richard Pryor, li- sit, watching comic view, um, way past my, when my mother told me I can, you know, watch it. And, Really knowing that comedy is a space where people say their most provocative thoughts and express their stories and tell their point and do it. Now, granted, there were some other things that were said in um, Monique's act that were um, just no, no doubt were were homophobic and she weaponized um, queerness against a man in order to like make her point. However, I think that there is like a I don't want to say there's a space for homophobia in um in comedy, but I think that I, I think that no matter what she would have said, if she did not say that, we would have still been uncomfortable with how she was acting. And I just was curious, like, where is it? Where is it appropriate to express yourself specifically in this way, nonviolently, about what's going on with you? And why does it make it so make it so uncomfortable when somebody does it? First of all, I marvel at Monique's ability to keep us talking about her. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait, what? Who cares who was supposed to headline the thing? What that got to do with me? But we reading articles and we going back and forth. And all I hear is cha-ching, cha-ching in Monique's pocketbook. So she got some kind of strategy and uh, I think the other people are hating because they're like, why do we keep talking about this lady? But uh, she's chit-chatting straight to the bank is my guess. Um, I, You know, I think, I think in comedy, I do think there's a lot more latitude for people to, to see and be whoever, say and be whatever they want to be. And I think we all have the choice to decide whether we want to listen to that kind of comedy or not. I feel like a hit dog hollers, right? I uh, Monique would be so far off my radar screen. She could say whatever she wanted to say about me, and I just keep it moving. So I don't, I, I don't know if this is. I love that, like you've elevated this to black public conflict. And when do we say like is this is a very intellectual conversation <laughs> that I want to participate in? But I got nothing because so low rent to me. This is so low rent. <laughs> Child, I love I love where the rate is low. I think that <laughs> <laughs> I like real estate there. I like intellectual real estate there. And I think I've like said it like a couple of times. I do think that we look, I think I, I definitely said this um around uh when not reported on like TI like a few like a few weeks ago. I do think that the things that happen in these places that we kind of are like we may put our nose up or we you know there's some separation are kind of where to me the more interesting conflicts are because they're visceral and they and there's no splitting hairs and you really see where people are at. You know, and I think sometimes we could be in this bubble of of even as black people, um, and maybe even just class black people, we can be in this bu- we can be in this bubble of oh yes, we we have no LGBT problem anymore, and we're really working on the on the women stuff, and we're getting this together, and da da da. And there was something about that conflict where I'm like, okay, patriarchy came in the room, homophobia came in the room, uh, ca- uh, uh, 
capitalism capitalist lust came into the room to really just to, 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 to oh, i'm the headline i'm the headline i'm, I'm like oh i'm like y'all are uh 50 something like <laughs> we have Say to get it, over Miles. it we have to we really have to get over it but i did but i do find it really interesting miss kaya I'm, I find it interesting too. I just don't know what to say intellectually about it. <laughs> I, I do you think this conversation, Miles, about um, when is it okay to disagree? I have very few regrets in movement land, but if I have any, it is that like I don't think that we disagreed enough in public. I think that we did it all behind the scenes, and I do think there's something, and I think in education too, Kai. I think about the conversations that I've heard the superintendents have, but like when people fight it out about teacher eval and da, 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 da. like we we do we pe- people think that the conversation is not being had it's being had it's just not being had in public right i think about the conversations i've been in recently about like teachers unions and about the beauty of unions and about some of the parts of teachers unions where you're like y'all this ain't about the kids and da-. but like the conversations become so heavy to talk about in public and people get worried and and that's definitely not what's going on with this monique and, <laughs> and dl thing but i do think this conversation about like when is it okay to disagree and i and and I too, regardless of what Monique's saying, I, I am fascinated by people's response to her always being not now. And it's like, well, if she actually is right about any of this stuff, then when is she like, what do you say when Tyler Perry, when she's saying Tyler Perry, Oprah, Lee Daniels, like when she's saying these big people are doing something to her, like what is she supposed to do? Just take it. And like, we would never tell our kids, just let somebody do something to you. Don't, like we would tell young people, go say something. But when people say something in public, black people, it becomes like a thing. And I, I'm still trying to figure figure that out. She is, you know, I don't know, some of it, I'm like, you know, she was so intense. Then DL, they posted this stuff on Instagram. I'm like, can I get an essay? Can somebody just report on this, please? So this can, like, there is an answer here. This is not an unanswerable thing. So can we actually stop going back and forth and just get an answer? Do you know what I mean? But I am interested in the question about like what happens, uh, how do we disagree and what to disagree? And I say this too, because there's this incredible essay that I want to send to all of you about, it's from an old movement guy. Um, and I say it because like he, it's a critique of the organizers back in the sixties. And this man was on it. And I'm like, I wish, I wish we were having these sort of intellectual conversations. He has this point that's like, I hate when people say the unorganized masses. He's like, it was the unorganized masses that started every uprising in this country. It was the unorganized people who, like this critique of the way people talk about leadership in moments like this. I was like, that's actually beautiful. And I've read a lot of the movement stuff that comes out and it's like, it is not helpful in that way. And I do think that we've learned so much from the last set of organizers and activists from disagreeing in public. And it was black power. It was the Pan-African people. It was that like, we saw their fights in real time and not these random Twitter battles. Yeah. I said low rent, low rent. <laughs> I mean, just uh, no, just because like I, I'm on some, I'm on some. What this got to do with me, right? <laughs> Everybody getting their money. I'm not getting my money. I don't care who was the headliner, who ain't the headliner, whatever, whatever. But it is, it is wildly entertaining. So, uh, and I and I told Deray like when we were discussing it because, you know, it was Memorial Day and I said, what else should I be doing but informing DeRay that this is happening and it's a big... <laughs> it's a big... 
it's a, it's a, it's a big it's a big deal in my um in 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 in, in my world. I love it. I love it. I always learn. I always learn something. But I do think this started happening at a time, just like personally, it's happened at a time where professionally I was seeing how I wanted to communicate at the, at the uh, old job I was at, the way that I was communicating, showing up and being, um, uh, just speaking my mind in, in different intersections like transness and blackness was really uh, being, vili- you know, vilified. And I think I saw Monique happening, that happening to Monique at the same time. So I do think there's a personal investment that I have in this. I am a Monique scholar. Um, I have followed her. I don't agree with everything. I don't support everything, but I do think it's really, really interesting because she is um, a older black woman of a certain size, you know, of the, of, of, as she says she's a fat black woman over 50. So I do think that in my head, no matter where the screams are yelling, if they feel that close to your identity one day, hopefully, you know, um, you got to listen to them until, because cause you don't want to start listening. In my head, I'm like, you don't want to start listening to, you're like, well, well, hold on. This person isn't a nice person, you know what I mean? Or this person do, does have dom- domination in, in mind. And, I don't, and I'm not interested in vilifying the people who she is talking about. But I do think there's something interesting about it because a lot of us are going to fail the things that help us be powerful. And a lot of us are going to have opinions and want to stand up for ourselves. And I think that in her in, in, in her comedy, you know, c- c- cigar smoking, cursing, uh, vulgar uh, root, uh, stage routine. There was there was a little bit of space. I felt like it was a little bit of advocacy. Where it's like, no, I'm not. I'm not doing that. And I think that sometimes I see that, and I'm like, oh, I'm not doing that either. In my way. I mean, I also I think stepping back, what has happened to Monique over the last how many ever years is a a really important case study around what happens to and we all know that older older actresses older artists don't generally get the same play as younger artists and that's doubly triply quadruply true for women of color um and so what what has happened to her career um at the hands of lots of different people for lots of different reasons, I think is a cautionary tale for anybody in comedy, in, in any celebrity circles. And I think we, just going back to accountability, right? Like we as a community have to be accountable to Monique. We can't laugh when she's making us laugh and not be there for her when, you know, she's being aggrieved. And I think just... Whose side are you on in all of these conversations is has been interesting. I mean, the Monique stuff over the last couple of years has been really interesting conversation for a lot of people in terms of what happens to older fat black women, it, me included, professionally and how people think it's okay to treat you. And I think she is redefining how she is being treated, who she is and not standing for it. And I'm with it. See, see you, see you got, see. Uh, welcome to where the rent is low. <laughs> I'm there. I just don't like this little thing thing. I wouldn't even waste my time on DL Hewley. Sorry, y'all. It, it, it was good. It was good conversation on Memorial Day over barbecue. I was like, oh, we got something mm. to talk about. 
<laughs> I, was call, I was calling Miles on all the updates. Miles, did you see this? Did you see this post? DeRay was totally oblivious that it happened. Then I had to like in. s- intellectually seduce him. I was like, this is why it matters. <laughs> and then I'm over here getting shade room links. And I'm like, DeRay. Because like, <laughs> at first I was like, this don't matter. I'm like, okay, I got other things to do. The world's burning. People are dying. People are dying. I'm Courtney to yell in the camp. Mm. People are dying. <laughs> Um, my news is, you know, the system continues to shock me every day. And I'm like, whew, I'm, it's hard to be shocked in a moment like this. But in Michigan, the prisons are banning Spanish and Swahili dictionaries to prevent inmates from or incarcerated people from organizing. So over the last year, the Michigan Department of Corrections, they've been banning dictionaries um, in foreign languages, mostly Spanish and Swahili, with the idea. And this is a quote. Let me read the quote from the spokesperson from the Michigan Department of Corrections. If certain prisoners all decided to learn a very obscure language, they would be able to then speak freely in front of staff and others about introducing contraband or assaulting staff or assaulting another prisoner. Mind you, the, quote, very obscure language that they're referencing is Spanish, which is the second most spoken language in America. I don't know where they got Swahili from up here in, like, the <laughs> this idea that people are using the dictionary to learn Swahili to organize Overthrow. against... Oh, the prison industrial complex. Mm. Um, And then he goes on to say, because the quote is good enough itself, when it's in a language that we don't have the ability to read ourselves and understand exactly what it is they're looking for, we're not able to allow it in. I mean, this is not fascism, the advanced course. This is not 101. This is the advanced course. It's so wild. And the article actually goes through talking about a guy, Mr. Rodriguez, who's been trying to get books in his native Spanish language, and he has been struggling to do that uh, because he doesn't speak and write well in English. And it's one of those things where if they can't find an English counterpart, they are actually just banning the books. So, so far, seven books in both Spanish and Swahili have been banned from the state's prisons. Uh, And I just had to bring it because I was floored that in 2022, this was the thing. I also didn't know that in 1989, the Supreme Court allowed prisons to ban any book as long as they claim that it is in the interest of safety. Um, I just continuously have the image of somebody looking around the prison and being like, we have blacks and we have browns. Spanish and Swahili, like, ban it. Like, it's so, it's it, that that is just so ignorant and goofy don't have too much to add to this but that you know a not too not too simple but powerful idea is if we didn't um if if prisons didn't exist in the ways that they do now and we really thought about how we deal with justice in this country we just wouldn't have to think about such uh this this is low rent <laughs> we wouldn't have to think about such low like low rent things and, and, be, and be so insulting we can still have people grow their intelligence and um and and at, like and read and 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 be able to talk to their families without uh and, and, and keep their dignity attack while they're serving this time and i think that the, all these little low rent moments are just uh, just giving Take me back to one answer where, where it's like, um, y'all need to gut this um, in quickly. So this was so interesting to me because, I mean, one, for all of the reasons that you brought it to the pod, 
Um, but also because we're talking about the same thing in schools right now, right? Which books are acceptable for kids to read? Who gets to decide? And so I started digging a little bit to figure out, okay, what books do people ban besides just language books? Um, I learned that like the prison sort of book uh, censorship stuff is the largest book ban policy in the United States. And each state gets to decide what it what it's banning. So for example, in Kansas, lots of times, like, so you should, you expect them to ban things like books on how to make explosives, right? Or books on, books that showed a prison, you know, layout or the surrounding area, right? Books that might aid in, a, in an escape or something. Um, but a lot of the books that are banned are, um, are Black history books, race books, um, books that are actually quite empowering to incarcerated people around history and identity. And, you know, that's really critical to the work that I do. I feel like if you don't understand who you are, you can't be great. And so there are, you know, places like Kansas that have banned books like The Hate You Give and The Bluest Eye, but they allow Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler's book. What's up with that, y'all? What's up with that? It's ridiculous. Um, they ban books like The Color Purple. They, bland, they ban all of these books that are really important um, cultural books for folks. And there is a website called bookstoprisoners.net where you can look by state on which books are banned in each place. And you can order books on Amazon to send to prisoners if that is your ministry. Um, you can donate books to prisoners and help them um, get access to some of the reading materials that uh, are available. So, um, you know, education is the first thing that they take away from you when they don't want you to be free. And we've seen that over and over and over again. And this is just further um, evidence of it. And I think, you know, it's now what we're seeing happening in schools. So this is worrisome. Don't go anywhere. More Podcast the People's coming. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in 1 minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This week we welcome the author Deepa Prashothaman to chat about her book, The First to Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. Deepa interviewed over 100 women of color in the workplace across sectors in different parts of the country and found a few trends that rang true for the majority. We talk about capitalism, delusions for women of color in the workplace, the health constraints that can come with involvement in the corporate sphere, and so much more. Deepa was able to put language to many things that people have experienced and things that I'd heard about, but I learned about them differently in our conversation. You will too. Here we go. Deepa, it is so good to have you on the podcast today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, I read your book, and one of the things about the book that is so powerful to me is that you you do such a good job of giving people the language. It's like you like the delusions, the, like you like it's like a roadmap in some ways to at least give language to people's experiences, and then at the end you talk about what we can do. But before we get to the book, can you talk about like how you even got to write, like why a book? Like what were you, what has your journey to the book been? 
to even do the interviews with hundreds of women? Like, how does this, how did you get here? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I want to first start with, I interviewed over 500 women of color to write the book. And so how I got there is really an interesting story. So I spent two decades in corporate America. I was a senior partner at Deloitte. I was our first Indian female partner and they partner really young. And those things are only important in that, right? I was a first, I, I, you know, had to kind of navigate spaces on my own and figure out things for myself because I didn't always see role models that look like me. So that was always I think part of my story, just growing up in the United States, being Indian American, there there was just always confusion. Um, after spending, you know, almost two decades in, in the same company in this corporate space, I had an amazing, you know, rise. I really did an interesting work. I think the last few elections started to make me ask questions about what my purpose was. My background had been politics. It actually wasn't business. Um, and that combined with I started getting really sick, to be honest with you. And it really made me question if I could keep being on the road as much as I was. I had a really intense job. And so in an attempt to figure out what I wanted to do next, I started meeting with women of color. It originally started as one-on-one, you know, dinners and turned into about a dozen dinners across the country where I met over 300 to 400 women of color. And we would get in these rooms for one or two hours. I thought I was just networking. Like, where does one go at a senior level when they're kind of done with their career and don't know what else to do? And instead, we would have these six, seven, eight-hour long conversations because these women were senior in their companies and their industries, but they were alone. A lot of them were experiencing similar experiences, but had never talked about it. And so it was almost magical. Those dinners turned into really the, the underpinnings for the book and also the company that I launched that's focused on women of color, too. Um, let's start with the format of the book, because this is one of those books where the format is like really the old, like it's how I think about the lessons I learned. I'm like, oh, why'd you choose? Why did Deepa choose to organize the book this way? Can you start us there? Yeah, I really wanted to start with, because I think so often people of color and women of color are told they need to do more, right? It's about them. And so if they just work harder, if they just change this, if they just lean in, right, things will get better. And part of my message was, Yes, there are things we can do and things we need to ask ourselves, like the narratives we believe for ourselves, which is really the first section of the book. It's really about the power of me and asking yourself, like, what is it that you believe for yourself that no longer serves you? But the other parts of the book are really asking yourself, like, how do you actually make change? You can't make it by yourself. You need the power of we. So you need the power of me and the power of we. And also really talking about the systemic things that are happening around us that just working harder or doing more isn't going to solve things. I really wanted to unpack, you know, I call it like the water that we're swimming in. Like we're, there is a lot happening around us that we need to understand as well. And so the book is really organized in this idea of there's things you need to ask yourself, like the delusions and the things you've been taught by your parents and by society. But then you need to understand what is it doing to you? Like what's the system doing to you? And then how do we work together to change it? So that's really why it's organized in that way. But let's talk about the delusions, because this was the part that I was like, you know what? I've experienced that before, but I didn't have the language. And then I was like, mm-hmm. delusions. I got it. A delusion. Can you, we won't talk about them all because people need to read the book to to get all the messages. But the delusion, just wait. Can you go through that one? That was one where I was like, you know what? This language is actually really powerful. So, yes. first The first chapter is all about delusions. And what I was trying to do was to really make us understand and to make us, you know, have language for this idea that there are things that we're taught. There's things that we're taught about how the system works, how corporate America works, how capitalism works. 
that, you know, maybe we don't have to accept anymore. And that's why I call them delusions. There are things we're told that, you know, are described as given. But part of what I'm asking us is, especially in this moment after the last few years, are these things we still want to take as given? Like, why can't we question them? And so there's simple things like this idea that we can't find you is the first one I talk about, right? So that um, a lot of executives will tell me we can't find people of color. We can't, you know, find women of color. And that's a delusion because we exist. (laughs) You know, we're qualified. It's just that we tend to favor people who look like us or our networks are like that. You know, another one is just wait. A lot of the women, you know, that I spoke with, especially the less tenured women, we're told things like they just have to wait their turn, you know, and that delusion that we have to wait our turn or that we have to wait for the opportunity or that we need to be patient, I think especially for women of color doesn't always serve us because there is a sense that we have to wait for, you know, the next person or the seat to open up. And I want us to feel comfortable if we're ready and if, you know, we have the right ideas that we're allowed to, you know, ask for what we want. We can be ambitious. We can push. And so that's really another example of a delusion. Um, and I lay out 10 of them in the, in the first part of the book. And they're really, in some ways, I think, a critique of, of corporate America, but also a critique of capitalism. I love the delusions. I was like, we need to make delusion posters. We need to like, that needs to be, <laughs> the, the delusions need to be a part of HR training because you don't even realize how insidious it is. Like you giving it language was actually really powerful to be like, oh, I can name this. People did tell me like, like you're, you know, just even though you have the skills, like just wait. And I know the book is about women in the workplace, but or women of color in the workplace. But um, I, I think that for a lot of people, the delusions ring true or across identity uh, in a way that was really powerful to me. Absolutely. You know, what's been really interesting, Dre, is that I wrote the book for women of color and I think naively thought that's who would pick it up. And it's actually been a lot of white leaders that have picked up the book and really wanting to understand what's different, have the language and have reached out to me afterwards saying, you know, a lot of white women in particular feel like a lot of it affects them as well in different ways, but that a lot of the delusions are not things they ever questioned. You know, the one, one of the ones that I find is really easy for people to understand is this delusion that there's one seat at the table. So many women that I interviewed had been told, like, there's one seat at the table. So as a result, I think a lot of women, whether it's women of color or, you know, women of color and white women, we end up in competition with each other because we've been taught wrongly, like a delusion that there's one seat for us. So only one of us is going to make it. But who told us that there's only one seat for a woman or a woman of color? Why do we believe that for ourselves? And so I think it's a great, it's one that people really understand and can get their their head wrapped around. And it's, yeah, like who taught us that? And why is that accepted? Like, why is that a delusion that we are okay with? There's a, there's a smaller section that was like tucked in, uh, in the beginning of the book that I was like, you know, I want to talk to you about this. It's titled, wait, let me get my book. It's on page 33. <laughs> and it is titled, um, our families teach us how to work. What did you mean by that? I mean, I read it, but, but like, yeah. why was this important to tease out in the book? Yeah, I think that, again, we have this idea that all workers show up, right, to the workplace. And, yes, maybe we have different family experiences. Maybe we're the first in our family to go to college or work outside of the home. But I don't think everyone truly appreciates that. And the ways in which we work, like our work ethic in some ways, like how we work, like what we believe in about work does come from our parents and our family. And I think this is so important for women of color in particular, because the message I heard over and over again, and I heard it mostly or most acutely with black women, but I heard it everywhere, was this idea that so many of the women I interviewed had been taught they had to work harder, sometimes two or four times as hard just to get to the table. And so, so many of the women I met were exhausted, overworked, burnt out, traumatized. 
Um, and so this idea that, you know, we have to really question how we work and how we define success and how we show up. And so much of that is taught to us by our parents and their experiences and how, you know, why they came to this country and how they came to this country and what they believe about work. And so I think that's part of the, the first, one of the first things we need to understand, that we all come with different ideas, even though I think corporate America wants us to believe and a lot of employers want us to believe we're all kind of showing up or we're going to gain skills, but we haven't really unpacked some of the beliefs and the philosophies and the things that are really entrenched in how we work and and where that comes from. And the flip side of that is that, you know, you talk about what it means to sort of shed the delusions, to name them, to see them. And then you talk about the wisdom. So, you know, it, it feels like in the same, in the same way that you help us understand that, like we come to the workplace with all these, all these things that we might need to unlearn or think through. We also come with, like cultural wisdom that sometimes we downplay. Can you talk about why you thought that that whole chapter was important to include in the book? Yeah. Because so many of the women that I interviewed felt like they were erasing parts of themselves. They felt like they had given up parts of themselves. And to me, one of the most like stunning, you know, statements I heard over and over again, and I interviewed a lot of senior women. So, you know, senior director and above VP and above these women would be sitting in power seats, even C-level women. And they would say to me, you know, they would look at me and they would say, Deepa, I'm sitting in a really powerful seat at this really big company. And yet I don't always feel powerful. In fact, I feel like I have less power in a senior seat than I did coming up. And part of it has to do with the fact that I edited myself, that I gave up parts of myself to get to the seat, thinking naively, once I had the power seat, I could do it my way. And there's less ability to do that. And so what I'm really trying to raise is that um, there, again, a, a delusion is that we, you know, try to, we tend to favor one kind of worker. Our model of success in the workplace is really modeled after a white male executive that tends to, you know, historically has had a stay-at-home wife. And that model is broken. That's what we found in the last few years. And that model also makes a lot of women of color give up parts of themselves, right, and not talk about their culture or their languages or the foods they eat at home. And so much of our wisdom and so much of who we are and our rooting comes from our history, and we need to be able to find ways to bring that to work. And those qualities and those characteristics aren't always valued at work, especially in corporate settings. So what I'm really trying to raise for a lot of, you know, people who've been taught to assimilate, you know, taught to go along to get along is you're giving up power when you do that. So really figure out like how you, where you find your power as an individual. You know, I'm not asking all women of color to show up as their authentic selves in all spaces. I think that feedback is really flawed because it's hard to do that. But most of the women that I work with have, you know, a half a dozen or maybe a dozen things that are truly important to them. I make them write them out and make them think about it. And I say, don't compromise on those things in the workplace, because if you do, you will lose power and eventually question if it was all worth it. And so that's really what this is about. It's really figuring out what makes you feel powerful. And there is cultural wisdom that we've been taught to put aside. And how do we bring that back to the workplace? Because that's where I think women of color um, can really lead differently and can really thrive and help set direction for what comes next. Now, you this is not only an unpacking, uh, like, you know, the workplace is screw book. It is a, like, here's what we can do. Like, and I think that is a beautiful part of it. One of the things in the in the sort of last third of the book, one of the things you say is kill the queen bee. What do you mean by kill the queen bee? Yeah, so there's a lot of academic research that suggests women don't help women. And so this idea that there is one, you know, when you're at the table, there's one queen bee or one person in charge. 
And there is a lot of academic research that suggests women will, you know, sometimes even sabotage other women, sometimes unconsciously because of that queen bee status. There can only be one of us. And this was so important to bring out and talk about because when I interviewed the women, you know, the last, you know, I spent an hour, sometimes two hours with these women, and I'd say in the last few minutes, is there anything else you want to tell me, anything else I haven't shared? And they would drop their voices. You know, if we were in person, they would start to look at their shoes or their feet, and you could tell there was pain and shame in what they were about to say. And they would say to me, can you talk about how, as women, we don't help each other, that white women have been really difficult for women of color, sometimes obstacles and blockers of us. But even as women of color, we don't often help each other, whether that's Indian women to black women or Indian women, you know, helping Indian women. And so that's really what I was trying to get at is that that's also something we've been taught. Again, back to that delusion of there's one seat at the table, which causes that queen bee mentality or this idea that there can only be one powerful woman. I want us to get rid of that because we can't change structures if we don't change how we work together, if we don't change how we see each other as women, and if we don't see each other as, you know, um, co-conspirators or, or builders together. Like, we can't see each other as competition because the system is already stacked against us. We need to work together to change it. But what was it, what surprised you when you were putting the book together? You obviously went in with like, a, here's what I think I'm going to hear. And then, you know, you you didn't do 10 interviews. You didn't do 20. You did over 100. Yeah. Was there like a, was there like something you were like, wow, this might be sort of small, but this is surprising or this is actually like big. And I didn't realize yeah. it like outside of what you've already talked about. Yeah, I think the, the two, you know, the, the, the three things were the idea that so many women of color I met were not feeling powerful. I think the, the idea that women, you know, really weren't helping each other. And then single handedly, you know, the single most, the single most important or shocking thing to me was how many women of color were ill or sick. Um, and that was two out of three women I interviewed had what I would call a mysterious illness. So not like a clear cancer diagnosis. But symptoms like skin rashes, headaches, you know, adrenal fatigue, there's about a dozen symptoms, heart palpitations that kept coming up over and over again. And um, most of these women were, you know, told by their doctors that this is just what happens with aging or we can't do anything about it. But these were persistent symptoms. And for me, as someone who was really struggling with my own health issues towards the latter part of my corporate career, it really spoke to me. So I spend a lot of time there unpacking that. And what I think, and I talk to psychologists and doctors, and what I found is I think when you do mute parts of yourself, when you do conform, when you do give up, you know, in some ways who you are to rise, I think what happens is your body speaks to you. And so that that was probably the most surprising thing is the consistency with which some of the challenges, but also the physical manifestation showed up for the women was just shocking and surprising. Now, we want people to buy the book. How do you, do, do you have hope that we can change the workplace or like yeah. what gives you hope? Or yeah. like, do you, are you like, you know, we, if we don't do this one thing, we'll never get it through. Like what's your, can, can we fix it? Yeah, no, I, I, I love that question because yes, the book has a lot of heavy, you know, information and a lot of data and a lot of stories. When people pick it up, you know, their feedback to me is, you know, I used to think this only happened in small pockets. And the fact that I have 500 women's stories, shows it's across industries, it's across sectors, it's across parts of the country. So I think that, you know, the data can't be, um, you know, denied. But yes, I'm optimistic because I met such amazing women who, in the face of obstacles, still figured out how to find their power and to find their voice. They, you know, did the work to get rid of the delusions and to get rid of these ideas that success came in one form 
and they really figured out who they were, and they're changing the world. I also feel really optimistic because as the book has come out, so many companies have reached out and asked me to come speak and not speak in a sanitized sort of version of, of the truth. Like I'm, I'm telling my truth in a way that I wasn't sure would happen when I, you know, when the book came out. And so I do feel optimistic. I also think I'm lucky that the book came out in this moment, you know, emerging from COVID. I think there are new questions about how people want to work and where they work and why they work and also just more space for conversations we've never had before. You know, I, I, what I'm trying to really highlight is the fact that corporate America is not a meritocracy, but we can't make it better for everybody if we don't talk about it. And I believe we can. And I feel like if there was ever a time we were going to change it, it's now. So I'm actually energized and optimistic and um, feel like there's, there's a renewed openness to this conversation that I've never seen before. The two questions we ask everybody. The first question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Yes, it's from one of my sponsors. He was a senior partner when I was a new partner. And he said to me, never need a client more than you want a client. And I took that and applied that to all parts of my life, including men when I was single, right? This idea that never want anything more than you, uh, never need anything more than you want something, right? Like to really be choiceful and not to find yourself in situations where maybe you take a client or you compromise on something that really isn't good for you. And so... Um, that advice will always stick with me and is, is something that I carry with me always. I love that. And the second thing is sort of akin to the, the question I asked you about the book, but, you know, we're in a moment where people feel like they voted, they emailed, they called, they testified, like they did everything they were supposed to do. And the world hasn't changed the way they wanted to. What do you say to those people? Yeah, I would say that my own story, I think, is a testament to the fact that, um, you know, yes, I had a very successful career, but it wasn't the life that I planned. I thought I would, you know, my background was politics. And so I found myself 20 years in a corporate world. Um, and then, you know, the politics I believed in weren't exactly how the world was playing out. And I found myself really disillusioned, like questioning, had I picked the wrong path? Had I made the wrong choice? Had I sold out, to be honest with you? That was a lot of what was going through my head, you know, for the last, for the last decade. Um, and part of why I wanted to step out of corporate America and write the book and, and start the company that I started was to really make change, was to help other people. So I think what I'd say to, say to people is sometimes it can feel like you're stuck. Sometimes it can feel like even when you're successful, you're not really contributing. And that's the time to ask yourself, like, what is your work in the world? What is your place in the world? And how do you want to have impact And that all of us can? And maybe it's not running for office or maybe it's not, you know, working a campaign like I thought it was. And I think this is my contribution and it's just as helpful. So maybe that's my advice is that, um, you know, I think a lot of us feel stuck. I think a lot of us question things, even if you don't think, of, think see that from the outside. And that we're in a moment where we can all make change. It's, it's make change in whatever ways you can and lean on your experiences to make change. We need, we need to make change in all sectors and all areas. So that's, that's what I would say. So do what you can where you are with the skills and the experiences that you have. There we go. Well, we can see your friend of the pot. I can't wait to have you back. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week.
Pod Daily Brew is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.